everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cancer Mom. As usual, it's Noor. Um, okay, so I have a lot to talk about. It's been a rather emotional week. Um, and so I have a lot to talk about. Um, so we'll get right into it. But before I do, um, I just wanted to talk about some silly shit. Okay, Trading Spaces is back. And I did like a little Instagram story again about the first episode. It was very quick. And you can actually hear like my one-year-old Noah sleeping you can hear him snoring over it but I did I did like a little story so you guys can check it out and basically they're basically just like now admitting that they torture people and if you're gonna sign up for the show which disclaimer I totally would it's like you're just letting them fuck up your house Doug and Hillary the worst designers who are like historically known for the most epic and awful reactions from home buyers they got the first episode so I do think that TLC is doing some fan service and just trying to get viral and you know what I'm here for it I love it um so definitely check that out I don't know what it's gonna be on I just like set it to my DVR and I'm gonna watch it when you know folding laundry and shit okay Real Housewives of New York also premiered last week and it was wonderful and I love that show because there's a lot of like fake female relationships on TV I think and I'm not saying that women should be awful to each other but as an adult woman in her 30s something that I've realized is my best relationships are the people that are just straight up with me and sometimes it's awful sometimes it's like a little rude but sometimes I like actually need to hear it and my best friends and I have no problem checking each other because we can say things to each other that's like you're being ridiculous and you're being crazy and this is not a good decision for you and the person can get mad but later on we recognize that like we're just doing whatever it is or saying whatever is in the best interest for that friend so i like real houses of new york because out of all of the housewives franchises it's the one that like they're pretty straight up to each other they're pretty mean but like they're kind of looking out for each other's best interest plus it's new york and i think it's the first of the housewives that i started to watch um like years and years like i guess like 11 years ago and i just love it um, but a premiere last week and it was great. Uh, the cast is the same as last season and the only updates are that Dorinda Medley is more drunk and even more fun than ever. Carol Radzeville is training for a marathon by actually running like Phoebe Buffay in the park. Um, and Luann, uh, aka the Countess, who is on the show now this season after divorcing the guy she married last season who everybody told her was a philandering like asshole she showed up this season with uh blackface diana ross as in she had blackface so if that doesn't make you want to watch it i don't know what will okay so like i said i have a lot on my mind today um and it's been an emotional week so let's start so I've always wanted to keep this podcast as light and easy and funny and laid back as I could. And I know that um, even as much as I've tried, many of you have said that you cried listening along and hopefully it's not like depressed tears, but maybe like hopeful touching your soul and this is us level type of tears. But I realized that on this podcast and even I think in public and in general, I've sort of had a really hard time talking about the totally dark stuff and I have I've mentioned it here I haven't but I haven't really fully thrown myself into 
talking about the stuff that keeps me up at night. You know, I mostly try to keep things light and positive, but not just on the podcast, but in sort of all aspects of my life. You know, I don't have breakdowns at the hospital. The nursing staff knows me and they know that I'm like silly and I joke and I'm obnoxious. And there isn't like even a single conversation that I've ever had with his oncology team that doesn't include jokes and a few laughs. And sometimes I can't tell if that's unhealthy because maybe I should be more emotional or if I'm handling my grief surprisingly well. So on this episode, I want to talk a little bit about my grief hub and managing it and sort of what it means to really grieve when you have a child with cancer or when you're dealing with cancer in your life. You know, when Aiden was diagnosed, I, of course, was extremely overcome with grief but it all happened so fast that I didn't really have time to address it all. You know, a lot of the shock and awe at the time of initial diagnosis, it brings with it a lot of confusion and a loss of control. And a lot of what I was grieving at the time, of course, was that this is my son and he's going through so much, but I also felt like I was so confused and the confusion led to feeling more out of control and you just don't have any time to address all those feelings so you just keep trying to get as savvy to these terms that you're hearing as quickly as you can to just try to go through the motions so that you can make an informed decision you know you definitely do have those mornings when you're like what the fuck this isn't real is i thought this was a dream and you have those like breakdowns every single morning and probably at night. But for the most part, during those early weeks, you're literally just trying to like understand all the information that's being thrown your way. You're grasping at straws to try and understand everything so that you could just keep moving forward. You know, at the time of diagnosis, we were in Maryland and um, at Johns Hopkins, and a lot of the way that everything went down was very serendipitous. Um, which I will say for a future episode, but I was in Maryland at the time and I was in the hands of very capable people, both medically and um, personally. My dad's like whole extended side of the family lives in Maryland and a lot of my mom's side of the family lives there as well. But a lot of the people that are there that are related to me are doctors. So I was able to have two of my cousins, an oncologist and a neurologist by my side to help manage a lot of the confusion. So the part of my grief that was like bewilderment was able to remain in control. And then, you know, of course, control, the lack of control, that feeling of nothing is in your control, you know, grieving, knowing that you cannot turn back time. You can't make this go away. You can't fix it. You know, I, I'm an A-type person and that was a major issue for me. And it still is, you know, again, another future episode topic about really feeling out of control. But a lot of the grief that comes along that time of diagnosis is that loss of control. So at diagnosis, you take confusion and lack of control and then you mix it with your natural emotions for the person that's being diagnosed. You know, whether it's you or your child or your spouse, you break down. You know, you feel that deep, deep pain in the core of your body that punch to the gut and that feeling like I'm going to throw up that you think about every single time you go put yourself back in that space, the feeling that I'm getting right now. You try to just push that feeling aside so that you could just keep moving. And I knew that pain so well at the time and I still know it so well, but I masked the shit out of it just so I could keep going. Because for me, I was again, surrounded by really, really capable people, the confusion part was sort of covered because I had my two cousins, uh, oncologists and neurologists, breaking down all these steps and 
explaining what all this medical jargon meant so that I could understand what the next steps would be so that I could feel like I'm making an intelligent decision. And because of that, the control part, the feeling, the lack of control part sort of got resolved. It sort of fell fell in with, I felt like I was more in control because I had these buffers. I, I But in public, I still masked a lot of what I was feeling. You know, I never really talked about it. Like I said, even on this podcast, I really try hard not to go to my darkest places. You know, Fahad and I never really shared our emotional moments with other people. We had so many people coming. We had so many visitors. I have so much family and we have so many friends and and relatives and everybody that would show up. And I had just gotten used to like putting on my best face. You know, I internally was still feeling such deep despair but I wasn't really sharing them with anybody. I think those moments I just saved to be felt with Fahad, you know, and maybe a handful of other people. I think my mom, my cousin Aisha, who is like my sister and, but she's my cousin and I'll talk about her a lot and she'll be mentioned across the podcast. So if I say Aisha, just assume she's my sister. Um, And my brothers, I think they were the only ones that really felt me or ever saw me have a complete full breakdown, which again, didn't last a very long time. You know, Fahad and I would embrace, we would hug, we would cry, we would hold each other, but like we had to just snap out of it because we had so many things happening at the same time. But even now, like with my family, with my cousin, with my brothers, I don't really go to the really, really deep, dark place. You know, I said, as I said in the last episode, I still have to say like, he's doing great whenever I think about telling people what's going on in my life. And I feel like I do that because I feel like I can control the situation by controlling my emotions and putting out my best face. And I think that speaks a lot about me in general. In my life, I have always been the person that for the most part kept it together you know, I don't have panic attacks. I don't lose my shit. I manage things. I take charge. I don't like people who are indecisive. I can quickly make a decision. I've always been the person that can just handle shit. You know, I'm an A-type person who has had every success in my life by being an A-type person. And I'm married to an A-type person. So I feel like I've always just sort of taken on the role of fixing things, of just handling it. We'll be at like weddings or like random events and somebody will like tap on my shoulder and be like, I can't figure this out. Can you like help me? And I'm just like, okay. You know, at, at, at like relatives weddings, like they would call me master of chaos because I wasn't shy about telling somebody to stop wasting my time or like telling an elder to get in line because they're being late or telling somebody like, no, you can't come into the room because you're late now because that's just who I am. My brothers joke about the fact that like I'm the son that my dad always wanted, even though I have two brothers, because I am the one that is like going to get the refund that I deserve or like going to get better service. And I've probably had people spit in my food, but you know what? (laughs) It's okay. It's not okay. Like, even as a kid, I've just always been super bossy, and I was bossy beyond my years as a kid. And as I grew up, I it, the bossy aggressiveness kind of turned more into just, like, an assertive person. Also, as, like, a 32-year-old woman, I'm happy to say that bossy is a great compliment. I love feeling bossy, and I am, I am bossy. But, you know, that's just who I am. And, like, a phrase that I use every single day in my house, like, t- 20 times a day is, I'll take care of it. Like, even though I have a super A-type husband, like, he'll, he's super, he's amazing. He does so much stuff to, like, help me out with everything. But, like, he'll, you know, like, laundry will be done and he'll come up to me and he'll be like, hey, so, um, 
uh, I folded the kids' clothes, so do you want me to just, like, put it in the closet? And in my mind, I'm like, uh, I could tell him where everything needs to go so that I don't, you know, have to go in and redo their closet. I, I could do that. I could just have him put it in so that later on when I have time, I go back and I fix it. Or I could just tell him that I'll take care of it. And then I do. I'm like, I'll take care of it. Like, oh, crap, I have returns to do. And this is like an errand. I mean, whatever. That's just me being a helpful partner. But like everything that sort of happens in our life, I'm like, we'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Like our fridge, like there was an issue with it and we have a warranty. And I was like, I'll call them. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it because I have all the information. I like manage all that kind of stuff in my house. And so I've just I've always just become the person who like takes care of it. And since getting married, it's funny, like my father-in-law loves it because he's He's that person in his family with his siblings, the one who takes care of things. And so it's nice for him, I think, to have me. But it's just always I've always just found that I'll just do it. You know, instead of having somebody else do something and then me redoing it, I'm just always like, I'll take care of it. It's always easier for me to just do it than to delegate and have somebody else handle it. Even now, like it's easier for me to just handle my own mental health and handle my own self-care than to try to delegate it or try to get somebody else to help me through my grief. Like, how am I going to try to explain to somebody what the instructions are to help manage my emotions? I don't even know what those instructions are. It would be impossible. So like in this situation, in this new life that I have, I'm not delegating my sadness. I'm just handling it. I'm just taking care of it. I'm managing my own grief. But I think what I'm also doing is managing other people's grief. You know, my friends and family have gotten used to me being the person who just takes care of it, the one who just handles it. So even when I talk to them about Aiden, like I think I I always just word it in a way where I kind of make them feel like there's literally nothing else that you can do for me right now. Everything is fine. Like I handled it. And I don't think that that's necessarily healthy. But it's just something that I've been doing for so long that I don't know how to turn it off, even in this scenario. And I, I and I, re- I know that I do it because I can take myself back to the day that we found his mask and actually remember the exact moment when I just decided to take charge. On Saturday, November 4th, when the doctors came in and told us that there was a tumor in his brain, I had my initial shock and disbelief. You know, I remember asking them to show me the scan and I had no idea what I was looking at. I like marched over to the nurse's station. I had no idea what I was looking at. I just knew that I needed to go do something because my husband was completely heartbroken and shattered. You know, I'll never forget walking to and from the nurse's station to our room at Howard General. I remember climbing into the bed and cradling Aiden and just weeping into his body, rocking back and forth and just repeating my baby, my baby. In those moments, Fahad definitely managed my grief. You know, he held me, he hugged me, he said, it's okay, don't scare him, it's okay. But I looked at him and I saw that this man that I love so much was breaking into a million pieces. So as soon as the nurse asked me, is there anything that I can help you with? Is there anything that you need? I turned to her, I got off the bed and I said, I need a phone charger, I need to make calls. And again, as usual, I started doing it. I started just handling shit. I was gonna figure this out. I called my physician cousins. I called Fahad's best friend, Umar, who's a neurosurgeon at NYU, who loves Aiden. I read all the reports of them, and I don't even know what I was reading. They said a bunch of stuff back to me, and I honestly don't remember what they said. The only thing I remember in that moment was turning around and seeing my brother Raheel walk into the room and my husband just weep into his arms. I had never seen anything like this before. I just knew that I needed to fix it. I just knew I needed to figure this out. 
Bud turned to me and he said, I have to tell my parents. We were out of town. They were in New Jersey. They had no idea what had happened. He said, I need to tell my parents. And he could barely even speak the words. So I said, no, you're not calling anyone. I'll take care of it. And then I did. I took care of it. Later that night when we got to Hopkins, all of my extended family from Maryland came. I didn't see any of them until later that night. And when I did, I didn't cry. I just kept it together. I kept telling them he's in great care. He's at Hopkins. It's the best place he could be. And I don't know much else. I just know that I need to keep moving forward. Later that night in the waiting room, we even joked with my cousins and my brothers about testicular cancer. Yes, we joked about testicular cancer because my brother, Nabil, had been diagnosed just three weeks prior. He was cancer-free and able to make light of his journey. That really says a lot about my family. We mask our pain with inappropriate jokes. It's just who we are. 36 hours later, he had brain surgery. And five days after that, the official pathology came, confirming that, of course, yes, it is officially brain cancer. Father and I held each other. We wept. We prayed. Aiden, all of a sudden, after not speaking or talking or eating for five whole days, woke up like a light switch. And like a light switch, we turned off our tears. We turned to him. And he said, I want mac and cheese. He belly laughed. He said he wanted his iPad. He wanted to watch his Halloween videos. And he started laughing at the dumb faces his dad was making. He even winked at the nurses. For the first time in five days, he was more himself than I had ever, ever thought that he could be. Our little boy just wanted to do nothing more but to hang out with his best friend. My mom, Aisha, my cousin, and my father-in-law and mother-in-law were in the waiting room at the PICU. Everybody was waiting on the pathology. They all knew that the update was coming today. Fahad sighed and he turned to me and he said, we have to tell my parents. And as usual, I said, don't worry about it. I'll tell them. I'll take care of it. Because I saw how much it meant to Fahad to see that Aiden was being himself, that he was smiling. I just needed him to spend more time with his best friend. So I did that. I left Fahad and Aiden. I came out and I told my in-laws that the tumor that was completely removed from Aiden's brain was, yes, in fact, cancerous. But that the tumor was gone, and we don't know what hidden cancer cells exist, so when we return home in three weeks, we're going to start chemo for probably about six months. And we're probably going to have to follow that up with radiation of his entire brain and his spine. But even though that's so difficult to hear that kind of treatment for a three-year-old child, I needed to tell them that, more importantly, Aiden was awake. He was laughing and he was eating and he was hanging out with his best friend. And I worded it in such a way that I think it almost took away the weight of the cancer. Instead of delegating the pain I was feeling, the agony I felt throughout my entire body, I just kept it all in. I came, I told them as straight face as I could so that they wouldn't feel the pain I was feeling. I know they were upset and I'm pretty sure they did cry, but just hearing that Aiden was doing better and that he was laughing and he was happy and he was eating, especially for grandparents, eating, that's all they needed to hear. They were happy to hear that he was recovering well. As more friends and family came, I'd always just say, Alhamdulillah, which is Arabic for thank God. He's fine. He's doing well. He's recovering. We're on a path to healing. Just pray for us. And I would always say this as straight face as I ever could. I never agreed with anyone. I never let anyone know how broken I was on the inside. You know, I've always tried to keep things light, as I said, in a really, really terrible situation. I make a lot of jokes. I laugh a lot. I mostly smile. And even on the Facebook page that we have to update Aiden on his progress through social media, you know, I only post the positive things. I have an Instagram page. I have a Twitter feed. 
But my Twitter feed mostly is about Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules, RuPaul's Drag Race, and the Trump collusion. But everything else in terms of like Aiden and his what's going on with him, like I've pretty much kept all of my emotions on the inside. And I think that speaks more about me than anybody else because, you know, I, I make these jokes. I know that there's nothing funny about this. It's all awful. It's all terrifying. But there is there's so many parts of this that nobody wants to bring up that you sort of mask it with other stuff that's going on. I don't want to talk about it as a parent because it's a dark place for me to go. But I also don't think that people really want to hear it or talk about it or listen to me talk about it. I just, I don't want to bring it up, but it's the common thread that binds all of us cancer parents together. It's the part that keeps us awake at night. It's the part that never really goes away. And it's the thing that makes us go completely dark. It's the idea of outliving your child. It is the idea of knowing that this could be really, really, really bad. You know, they say that there's five stages of grief, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, which I didn't know that was a thing, and acceptance. So the thing I wanna try to understand is what happens when you skip the first four steps and you just go straight to acceptance. Like something bad happens and you just accept it and you just keep moving forward. And I think, I'm just trying to figure out if that's where I am, but I think the thing is that I'm just constantly maintaining my grief. I think all of us parents, we're constantly in a state of grief maintenance. Like we're constantly thinking back to the moment when we were told that our child had cancer. We're constantly digging ourselves out of our darkest holes. We're constantly falling into denial when something seems normal and then getting angry when we realize that things aren't normal. And then sad when we realize that they are just what they are and then bargaining with God or whoever to make it better or make it go away. And then just finally accepting that to be present is the best thing that we can be. You know, that initial confusion, that loss of control, those are things that never go away when you have a child with cancer. They don't go away when you're in treatment. They don't go away when you're in remission. They stay with you forever. I can't tell you the number of times I think to myself, like, wait, is this for real? And then quickly I just shrug and I say, okay, well, I guess I guess it is. So it's better to just keep moving. You know, the thought comes back to me later at like one in the morning when I'm trying to sleep. And then I find myself Googling things like a psychopath, like, medulloblastoma prognosis it's like i type in like m and google knows to like autofill that because that's all i'm doing i'm like constantly googling things about my kid's cancer because this is the shit that keeps me up at night but like i don't have a breakdown in public about it you know like i said we just kind of keep things internally we keep things in our home and then we just keep moving forward because there's just so much going on and i think that i i'm now just used to being this way i've learned I learned really, really early on to just filter my emotions and to just manage my grief in front of other people. But I think it's a problem because what has happened in this situation that is that I think I'm doing a disservice to the people on the outside. When I keep things in, people just assume that shit isn't as bad and that the that's not good because they don't get the whole picture and the whole truth of what it's like to live with cancer. And when you do, if you are a mom that like lets it out all the time, you end up looking so dramatic to the outsiders that everybody just keeps their distance or they become desensitized to it. You know, it's like Trump tweet headlines. It's like, OK, well, something crazy happened again. Let me just keep scrolling right past it. And you sort of feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But when you keep things in like I have, I think that's when people also assume that they can say some wild ass shit to you, <laughs> you know, the stuff that I talked about in episode three 
um, where I made the list of like things that I, people shouldn't say to me or things that people shouldn't do. Like you can add these things onto that list. You know, I get these moms that think that they know what I'm going through just because I don't express how sad I am all the time because I just don't want to because I don't think that anybody would uh, would understand. And instead, then I get comments like, you know, I'm a mom, I understand. You know, I'm a mother, I have a child, I understand. And it's like, I don't think that you do. You really don't. You know, just because I'm not having a complete meltdown all the time doesn't mean that I'm not sad, doesn't mean that I'm not grieving. I will never, ever stop grieving for the loss of the life that I used to have, for that blissful ignorance that I lived in. I miss the fuck out of it. I miss living in ignorance and I know that sounds stupid because who wants to do that but it felt really good at the time you know it's really hard to live back your old memories it's really hard and it's really sad and it's upsetting but I don't talk to people about it because I just don't think that they want to hear it you know I talk to people about keep being positive keeping things moving I don't tell people what happens when he's in treatment you know I can't detail it because people just can't handle it and to be honest I don't think that they're soaking in that kind of information you know, I don't talk to them that he goes to clinic two to three times a week. I don't talk to them about the Metaport in detail. I don't talk to them about infusions and blood products and antibiotics. I don't talk to them about the type of chemo he's getting. I don't talk because even honestly, again, like when I have, they just don't remember. Or they don't care. I don't tell people that the time between rounds at home is like living on eggshells. You're constantly on high alert. You check temperatures a million times a day. I don't tell them that. My kid is now getting old enough to go from being an, a normal kid to realizing that he's not like other kids. You know, go imagine going from three to four, all of a sudden having like an awakening and realizing like, wait, I used to go to school and now I don't, and I don't look like other kids. You know, I, I know that he sees those things now. I don't talk about his night terrors or his day terrors or that he wakes up every morning begging not to get medication. You know, I don't talk to you about how I wake up two to three times a night, just making sure he's breathing like he's a baby again. I don't talk to you about the fact that I'm constantly afraid that he's going to die. And that's the part about grieving that non-cancer parents don't realize. You know, we never stop. Our wheels never stop turning. This is never over for us. And I know that it's never over for us. And you know why? Because we're part of a community of beautiful families, of beautiful children who lose their battles daily. You know, kids that seemed fine a week ago are all of a sudden angels you know they've all they've lost their battle they'll have gone to heaven they're gone to seek god you know children who look like my kid children whose stories of diagnosis sound exactly like her kid moms who just seem as hopeful as me you know parents with hopeful faces and children with happy sunken lashless browless eyes they're gone and i don't express to you how fragile everything is in our lives because it's a hard pill to swallow and we don't want to bring down the mood and we don't want you to feel bad for us. We filter our pain for you so that when you do try to come and support us while we're grieving, you just don't end up feeling badly. The truth is that unless your kid is going through the exact same thing or some sort of life-threatening illness, you will never understand. Just as I truly cannot help support and truly empathize with a parent who has lost their child to this awful disease. All I can do is be present for them and give them my love and send them positive vibes. But you know what the best thing you can really, really do for somebody who's going through something really awful like cancer? I'm going to say this really nicely and I mean it. You can just shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, if it's like the saying, like, you don't have anything good to say. Just don't say anything at all. Like we learned that when we're what, three, four, five, maybe six. Like, but 
we just have this inability to just sit in silence or to just leave a text unread or to be on, you know, to to just not respond to something. So then instead, people just say dumb shit, like shit that they think will make people feel better. But it doesn't. And I know for a fact because I've probably done it before. You know, again, I said on episode three, I talked about all the shit that pisses me off. So I guess you could just add this on to it. But, you know, people that think that they know how to help you with your grief by comparing their healthy children and their crazy schedules with mine. It's like apples and oranges. Like, yeah, I have a really hectic schedule, too. Like, oh, you do? Do you wake up at six in the morning, two to three times a week, drive to the city and watch your kid scream and cry as they stick a needle inside of him and pump him up with a bunch of fluids? Oh, you don't? Okay. Like, oh, is that the same as having to go to soccer practice and drink wine out of a flask or a hidden cooler or whatever it is that you're doing like it's not the same thing and you know you won't understand and to be honest I don't need you to understand that's not why you're why you're my friend I don't need you to understand exactly what I'm going through we're not the same and I don't want you to be the same as me I don't ever want your kid to go through what I'm my kid is going through but just you know don't ever compare your suffering to another person's because they're not grieving the same way that you think you would if you were in that situation you know don't compare your great life with some minor hiccups to somebody who has cancer that's not being empathetic just be present in the moment for that person give them an ear or just you know just let them just listen to them just be there for them when they text you be genuine pay attention and for god's sake stop asking the same fucking questions it's really really disingenuous and it's so painful and it hurts it actually hurts and also, like, when I say that my house needs to be clean and I can't have visitors and I'm sorry that my ki- your kids can't see my kids, like, just understand that I'm not being rude. I'm just trying to protect my child because if he gets sick, then he delays his treatment and that would have a monumental impact on his actual life expectancy. So I need you to just, just follow the lead of the cancer parent. They're probably the ones that know the best for their children. And then just recognize that this grief period of ours is not going to be a short period of time you know we're always going to be grieving we're always going to have to continuously manage different aspects of that grief something tells me actually that the anger and the depression the major parts of it are probably going to pop up for me at some point when we're out of treatment i know it's going to hit me like a ton of bricks but we'll cross that bridge when we get there and that'll be another future episode for the podcast (laughs) You know, I'm all I'm trying to say is like, just be better, be good to people because you don't know the kind of pain and the kind of just craziness that goes on in our brains sometimes. There is one more thing I want to quickly plug before we wrap up. There is a um on the topic of grief, there is a, an organization I found in New Jersey for my New Jersey listeners called Good Grief. They are based out of Morristown and Princeton, so North Jersey and South Jersey. They are an organization that's mission is to provide unlimited and free support to kids, teens, young adults, and families um, after the death or sickness of a father, mother, sister, brother, anybody, like any family member. And they really do it with support programs. They do it with education, advocacy. I mean, that's so important, culturally speaking, in terms of managing mental health and dealing with sadness and feeling lonely and feeling hurt and not understanding death, especially, or anything like that. I didn't know that this existed. I just sort of found it, you know, as I was preparing for today's episode. Um, and I hope that I can get more involved with them later, but I think it's a really, really cool thing to do. And so they have volunteer opportunities where you can just come and you can, 
use your talents if you do art or therapy or music or whatever and you just want to you know help people understand and make them feel normal make them know that grieving and sadness is normal and it's and i'm sa- as i'm saying this i'm like i'm not really doing a great job of managing my own but you know i think it's great that an organization like that exists um but if you want to get involved with them i will post their information on my facebook page and all my social meds you know i started off the episode talking about the real hostages of new york and i'd like to end it with that so in the drunken words of the amazing Dorinda Medley. I'll make a roast chicken. I'll get two bottles or four bottles of gray wine. Okay. And we'll sit there, close the door. Okay. And we'll tell our deepest, darkest secrets and then go to sleep in my bed. Okay. Watch Ghost Hunter. Yeah. Ghost Hunter. So she said, after the marathon, can you stay in my apartment? We'll mellow out. I'll make you a roast chicken. I'll get two bottles four bottles of great wine. We'll sit there and close the door. We'll tell our deepest, darkest secrets and then go sleep in my bed. Watch Ghost Hunters. Honestly, guys, that sounds great. And I want Dorinda to be my friend. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I am available on the internet at Cancer Mom Noor on Instagram and Twitter. And I am on Facebook at Cancer Mom Podcast. Um, please like and share and all that social media shit. Um, Aiden is gearing up to hopefully start round six soon. So if I'm back in the city this week, I will let you guys know if another uh, security guard man decides to tell me that I look pregnant. This time I'm just punch him in the face. But uh, always remember to never give up and fuck cancer. Bye guys.